It's that time again. We go beyond the jive. Join our host, John Swan and Natalie B. Brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. All you hive jive junkies out there, this is the Hive Jive. I can't remember the exact phrase, and I tried to bring this up to you before the recording, and I can't remember the phrasing of it, but it's along the lines of like, there's no such thing as bad publicity, Um, meaning, you know, like fame and infamy both go the same direction when it comes to publicity, because if you're in the news or if somebody's talking about you, regardless if it's positive or negative, it's going to pique other people's curiosity and they're going to go look into it and and find out. So. Yeah. yeah. And how on the offensive. And yes. We're just great. This is awesome. And others are like, nah. yeah, you can end up with people that are defending you. You can end up with people that are mad at you. Um, so to segue into today's episode about people being mad at you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't really know where this topic is going to lead us. I feel very conflicted about this one um, because I, it definitely, like, I don't really know how the conversation is going to go, but it definitely could piss a lot of people off. And I don't intend it to be that way because I am literally flip-flopping constantly in my mind on this subject. And I don't even know where I stand with it. So, so what are we talking about? This is, this is Mike's fault. Mike, this is your fault. Uh-oh. Mike commented on last week's episode where we were talking about honeybees as the poster child for this save the bees movement and he brought up a concept that i had actually heard uh an episode on beekeeper confidential i think was the first time that i had actually been introduced to it and i tried to go back before the recording and find that specific episode so that i could give it to you guys to listen to and i can't find it i was scrolling back and forth through that trying to find it and the the title wasn't jumping out at me but the concept is called wilding or in real terms, quote unquote, rewilding honeybees. In essence, reintroducing honeybees to the wild in their native habitat, but not necessarily in a beehive. It's it's in a it's in a na- natural bee habitat hive, hive meaning the structure the bees live in, not man-made, but at the same time it kind of is man-made in a way. So there, there's a lot of weird little parallels to this. It's like, that's why I'm like, I am all over the place in my brain when it comes to this, because it, it is ripe with contradiction all the way through. And I don't know how I feel about it. Well, it's one of those things you can easily play the devil's advocate on both sides. And he's eating pears again. <laughs> going to turn you <laughs> I did it. I popped it in my mouth. And as soon as I did, I was like, yeah, there we went. <laughs> So if you're here crunching, you'll, you know, that's not I, me. <laughs> I'll mute myself while you talk for a minute. <laughs> so, uh, there, yeah, there's all kinds of different angles that you can look at what we're going to talk about today. And we encourage you to look at that. The video especially is particularly interesting. But um, basically, there's a big effort to rewild bees that have been exploited as commodities um, for the sake of production, production of various beekeeping products, such as honey, uh, pollination contracts, uh, wax, uh, propolis, any kind of exploitation of the colonies that are under man-made hives beekeeping management practices. And so that effort 
is um, working with uh, those log hives that uh, are then being suspended into back into the trees the same way that most of the um, bees uh, or actually the what Dr. Seeley says the bees prefer is about 15 to 20 feet up and in a tree trunk in a cavity uh, that's got you know a volume I think it's about 40 liters um, they're allowed to swarm every year and uh, there's a lot of things being mentioned, um, there's a video that really is fantastic, actually. But what John is mentioning here, uh, the, the contradictions of this all, <coughs> excuse me, is that those log hives are still hives and they're still man-made because they were carved by people yep. for the purpose of giving them, uh, mimicking natural cavities of the bees use in nature. Right. And so there's a contradiction somewhat there. It's not a Langstroth square box. It doesn't have any frames. There's none, none of that going on in there. And as such, it is different from the hives that we keep. We tend as beekeepers to assume that beehives are man-managed or, or people-managed boxes for production purposes. Right. And the definition of hive is literally the cavity that the bees live inside. Right. It's not supposed to infer the man-made Langstroth hive. It's not supposed to mean top bar hive. It's literally the cavity and container, whatever that is, a tree, a cave, a man-made hive, that quote unquote is a hive, but we call them beehives. So now we just associate that. It's almost like Kleenex. Kleenex right. is a brand name, but right. anybody who asks for a tissue asks for a Kleenex. Right. Same thing with a Q-tip. That's a brand name, but anybody who asks for that little cotton swab on a stick asks for a Q-tip. So mm -hmm. it's it's kind of one of those things that's become synonymous with the man-made hive, but it's not. It is the cavity the bees live in. So there's that aspect. And, and as you said, yes, it is it's still man-made, but there's a video in there where one of the gentlemen... Sorry, there's a scene in the video that we will we'll we'll give you the web page um, for one of the major forefront pushers of this whole concept. And on their web page down towards the bottom, there is a video in there that actually goes through. And, and like you said, it's beautiful. Um, but you see a scene in there where he has this massive log and mm -hmm. he is actually cutting, chiseling and carving the center of it out to make a hollow cavity so that it can be something bees would live in now. In nature, that would happen naturally. Down there in Central Texas, those live oaks, they are perfect because the whole center of those suckers are hollow most of the time. So right. they make perfect nest sites. We had so many forced abscond live removal calls for oak trees that the bees were living in. Um, but what they're doing is they're creating these cavities. They're taking them out into wild areas and they are hoisting them way up into a tree. Right. So that there is a natural cavity way off the ground that predators can't get to that the bees can live in and they are not managed. They are not harvested. They are not exploited. They live in that cavity just as if they had found this hollow tree on their own accord and moved in. So from that aspect, that's good. But we just talked last week about is it okay for the honeybees to be the forefront of this save the bees movement? And they are working to help ensure the survivability of honeybees. But, and, and again, 
I'm going to go all over the place with this. And so if I offend anybody, I will probably be right back on your side in like five minutes. And then I'll probably fish <laughs> you off again five minutes later after that. So just bear with me because this one is such a conundrum. Honeybees are not native. Honeybees are at the very, very pure essence of it, an invasive species. <laughs> <laughs> they were not supposed to be here. They are not any of the native bees. There is 4,000 native bee species in the United States. There's 20,000 worldwide. Texas, we've mentioned before, Texas has a thousand of them on its own. So it's got a quarter of them right there. But honeybees are not one of those bees. Honeybees were imported and they were imported for really good measures and means. But as Tom Seeley points out, honeybees are now so entwined and ingrained with our food production that now they're kind of needed. They're a necessity. But at the same time, we're walking a fine line between if the actual native bees are dying out and having these problems and they're having lack of forage and lack of natural habitat, and the honeybees don't really have that problem, as we mentioned in the last episode, because us beekeepers make sure that we provide for them. And if they're not having enough food, we feed them and we do all these things to take care of them. So if the native bees continue to disappear and we continue to promote honeybee, 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 the honeybees are going to be extremely crucial because they could very well end up being the last pollinator that's left out there. So yet again, another conundrum. <laughs> well, it's the equivalent of putting all our eggs in one basket. Right. And, and it's just kind of if we focus all our efforts on honeybees, we are forgetting native bees. I will play the devil's advocate, though, because by bringing attention to the plight of the bees and um, the environmental problems that we're suffering from, including pesticides, lack of habitat, lack of forage and how um, our commercial practices are impacting that and playing a role in that, I think it, it is helping focusing on maybe bringing the attention a little bit to all bees in general. I think to your point, honeybees are not necessarily the ones that are suffering the most from all of this. So you can flip flop back and forth and argue both sides, right? Uh, the other thing that I caught in the video is Dr. Seeley said that basically wild bees are doing better in general than our commercial bees because yep. they have a higher survival rate, which I have heard people without any kind of basis mention that the wild and feral bees are dying and there's no wild and feral bees and um, they are um, unhealthy and, and starving because no beekeepers is taking care of them, nobody's treating them. And so they're basically miserable and are not thriving, they're dying, right? Right. And, and so, Having Dr. Seely, which happens to be the hero of some of those people that are saying that, say it. I know. That's what makes it even more that's like amazing. like even more frustrating with the whole thing about I can't decide because I love Dr. Seely and Dr. Seely right. is 100 percent all in for this. And right. so that in and of itself makes me want to be like, yeah. But at the same time, I'm trying to like rationally think about these other aspects. But so to the note of bees in the wild are not being managed and they're dying. One of the things that I responded to Mike's comment, so Mike had commented on last week's episode again, that's that's where this all came from. So just reiterating, this is your fault. <laughs> but um, the way that I had responded to that was, I'm not really sure you know, how to take it and where to go with it because from a removal perspective, 
I came from Central Texas. You, there were so many freaking people that did bee removals, and yet, even still, there were so many feral colonies in places that they shouldn't be that we were all completely booked up and constantly busy every season, passing jobs back and forth to each other because we didn't have the time to get to all of them. So in Central Texas, there is not a bee problem, but there is a bee problem. There are too many bees is the problem. (laughs) We have problems with um, carrying capacity and intensity of use. And that's, again, going against what Dr. Silly says bees do in nature, where the level of uh, intensity of colonies of bees is much lower. And they choose to to distance themselves from each other a lot more than we do in our managed apiaries. But basically, what, what... Look, I love what they're doing. I really do. And I and I love that concept of not looking at the bees as commodities. I'm all for that. I mean, the whole thing speaks to me. I, it, it triggered a lot of emotions. Um, but like you said, there's things we, that can be kind of, you know, um, interesting to discuss. For example, the fact that Dr. Slee was saying that those bees, those feral bees are doing better, then why are we helping those bees? right getting rewilded so there's there's that um well he he did have a note to that though in this aspect of rewilding the bees the wild feral bees out there are doing better because of natural selection he specifically points out they're actually genetically and and uh they're they're more fit they're more evolved because natural selection has forced them to do that which is one of the whole things about natural beekeeping Right. trying to force that evolution of of the natural selection of, of the ecosystem. So he points out that these feral colonies that are not being managed are actually stronger, more fit, more able yes. to survive. And yes. it is providing yes. a better gene pool so, for exactly. any of these open mating colonies that are out there for everybody else. That's so it's actually be, helping the flip side. That's going to be the salvation. And you basically, uh, so I was playing the devil's advocate and I was going to go with that. So thank you for bringing it up. I told you I'm all over the place. I can't decide if I'm for it, against it. Like I'm just hopping sides. So there's a lot of arguments to be made on um, a little bit of both sides, but again, digging a little bit deeper and thinking, you know, um, you know, this is what we're doing. We're bringing it up to your attention so you can kind of mindfully think this through and kind of uh, evaluate what, what your feelings. It's going to bring up a lot of emotions. Look, very raw emotions as far as I'm concerned. And it's going to have you do that. Watch the video and think about what we're saying here. And you'll see where that little bit of a pendulum is going back and forth. Um, to play again, the devil's advocate. Again, I'm in full support of what they're doing. That's fine. Uh, the more wild bees, the more bees that are not managed by humans, the better off we're going to all be in the long run. Um, but there's an assumption that those cavities are all vertical, <laughs> right? They're hanging those logs vertically. Right. They're, they're yeah. hanging them as if it were still a standing tree. And But, but you know... As that's remover, not that's not right. <laughs> that's not necessarily what the bees do. Those hollow cavities can be in a horizontal branch. Right. The bees don't care that it's vertical, right? Right. They and follow it. If that if it if the tree trunk goes up and then it curves off this way, it could be at a 40 degree angle and they they just build and go along with it because the comb hangs to gravity. It so, doesn't matter yeah. what shape the tunnel takes <laughs> they, they so, just build along <laughs> let me give my totally biased opinion about vertical versus horizontal and i'll be completely honest that's my soapbox when you see bees building 
in a cavity that is not <clears throat> constrained by uh, foundation, whether it has frames or not, like a layens hive, for example, or horizontal hive, but to uh, any kind of uh, frameless hives, um, you will see what well, frameless or frame hive, as long as there's nothing obstructing them. You will see, especially if they have the depth available, that they're building horizontally first, and then they tend to start elongating as they go. You can see it in the open air hives, right? Yep. They don't go down. They just go horizontal first, and then they just kind of start stretching as they keep growing horizontal. Yeah. And right? if they're so in a container, eventually they will fill it to fit the shape of the container. Exactly. But it's nowhere said or demonstrated that they prefer vertical configuration right. by any means. And they certainly do not prefer having empty spaces imposed upon them uh, on top of what they've already built directly right. in an open cavity. They don't do that in nature. Yeah. They do not. There's That's, a root. They're, they're, I, I will say this, and then I'm going to turn right around and contradict myself. <laughs> um, so bees do not build up. They build down mm -hmm. and they build out and they're, they're going out and they're expanding down, but they're not going out and expanding up. So the original concept of a warre hive was mimicking a traditional tree cavity. The modern concept of a Langstroth hive took the, I need a forklift to pick up the hive to add a new box on the bottom and flipped it upside down because it's easier to put the new box on top. That was not for the bees perspective. Again, everything in beekeeping, unfortunately, is for the beekeeper, not so much for the bees. The the whole, I've said this before, I think I said this in season one of the podcast, the only thing that was in the bees' favor in a Langstroth hive was bee space. That Yay. was the only consideration made for the bees. Everything else was decided for them. You're going to build this specific cell size. You're going to build on this exact shape. We're going to add boxes to the top. Like the bees didn't get to choose that. We made even, them do that. Even the bee space, we we are using it. So for the sole pur purpose of being able to pull out those combs and inspect them, bees don't care if you don't, if you can't do that, right? Well, so right. Frames, no bee space, no nothing. The bees would be perfectly happy with that. The bees will still keep bee space, That's but right. their bee space may be accordion shaped, and mm -hmm. it's still perfectly shaped between well, there. But that comb, before. that yeah. comb is going to curve and be weird. So now I said I was going to contradict myself because uh, I have seen in the wild where bees have started inside of a cavity, and for some dumb reason, they started in the middle, and they mm -hmm. hooked it to the side of the wall, and they they built it. So for people watching the video. They built it on the side and they built it out and down and expanded across and then started expanding it upwards. And sometimes you will see them do that on a frame where they actually start on the bottom of a frame and start mm -hmm. building this weird little comb going upward. So they can do it, but it's not their natural inclination to do no. so. And it's very rare, right? So it's not something you see very often. Right. I think I've seen that twice. And I've, I've, you know, I've been, you know, I've got 300 colonies that I'm managing. And, you know, of course, they're in man-made beehives. So right. that's that too. But in tree trunks, I've seen it as well, where they were going up a little bit from the bottom of the thing. But that was looking like a mishap, like some comb fell down. And they're kind of like, okay, well, we'll. We'll keep extending it kind of a thing. We've got a live edge here, folks. Keep building right. it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was going to say something else. So the the average loss of colonies from year to year, overwintering especially, isn't it about 
40 to 50 percent depending on on a commercial yeah from from the reports which are mainly influenced by right. the commercial beekeepers that have you know 2000 hives yes so if we have 50 percent loss let's assume 50 percent loss and then so from 10 hives or 100 hives you end up with 50 the next spring if those are doing well and they've overwintered and they're survivors they're going to want to reproduce so the assumption is that they're going to each have one split or swarm available and your numbers will be made up that year, right? right. So the only saving grace and the only reason, reason that we're not swimming in honeybee colonies uh, is that their first year before getting established, there's a, a loss rate of about 75%. And so that's the only reason we don't have more colonies of bees. The other thing um, I wanted to mention that's very important to remember is that when it comes to managed colonies of honeybees, a lot of the numbers of colonies um, that are being managed in the United States specifically is, of, and I'm, I'm guessing all over the world, is highly dependent on supply and demand, the laws of economics, right? So a lot of the, um, the commentary that I've seen on scientific beekeeping or something was like, well, if you look at when the baromites get got into the United States, the numbers went down drastically. But then if you expand that to the beginning of the 1900s, you see something like a huge peak around World War II, and then it started going down. And then um, uh, there was a drop into the Varamite. Yeah, it uh, kind of leveled, it leveled out back to a normal, and it, yeah. And then it went back up a little bit. The reason why there were so many, I think there was almost 6 million colonies of bees back in those days, is because they were using beeswax to mix with some explosive to make it more stable to use during World War II. So they had a huge demand in beeswax, number of colonies exploded, and then at the end of the war, they didn't need it anymore, so the demand went back down drastically. And a lot of the things that are uh, impacting the um, number of colonies based on the laws of economics are um, <clears throat> honey imports, um, demand for commercial agriculture, and I forget what else, there's another third factor. So there's that to keep in mind as well, is, is that a lot of that, well, we don't have enough colonies of honeybees is very much so uh, driven by the laws of supply and demand. Right. The, the drop in numbers of those colonies is also impacted by that. Yeah. And the, the, the loss that you hear, because you mentioned like you can do a split or you can do this. Commercial beekeepers are ruthless when it comes to yes. the way that they, they drive some of those colonies. So we take them out there. We work them as hard as we can. Yeah, we lost 50% of them, but that's fine. I can take one hive and make five out of it. Most people aren't going to do that. They're going to take one hive and maybe make one more. You know, they're not going to do a drastic split and, and try to do all this other stuff. So there's a lot of, of give and take to that, but also a driving factor in that is something, and here's here's a good way to piss people off, the <laughs> idiots that keep planting almond trees out there, we already don't have enough bees to support the almond orchards oh, as they are. Trees. Don't get me started. <laughs> right, we don't have enough bees to support the orchards as it oh, is today. Water. We oh, have water. water, yeah, California, hello. <laughs> so the Colorado River is almost gonna be non-existent by the time you guys right. are through with it, thank you. Um, that you take every colony that is a commercial managed colony or migratory colony in the United States and you have to take them all to California to support this crop that is honestly unsupportable or you would not have to do that and you want to double the size of it. That is 
idiotic. <laughs> it's follow the money again, right? Damn so, conspiracy theories. <laughs> I'm a conspiracy theorist. No, but honestly, um, or so, or so you've been labeled as in the right, last episode. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the last episode that was like a, such a long time ago. The like uh, seven minute episode that was just a few minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's where we all need to be mindful of things, right? Because we all have philosophies and, and you know, subjective, you know, ways we want to live our lives. And we all want to try to be mindful of certain things. And um, I'm not going to uh, uh, beat on people that are vegans by any means. I don't have anything against people that are vegan. I, don't I will. I live with one. I was one for two years <laughs> and I will still happily say most of you people are on crack. If you think that the food that you're eating wasn't yes. produced from a honeybee, but yet you will not go support a beekeeper. You won't buy the honey from the beekeeper. You'll make fake honey out of apples, which yeah. is pollinated by bees. And you're going to live on avocados, which is 100% pollinated yeah. by bees. And you're going to drink almond milk, which is 100% pollinated by bees. And then you're going to say beekeepers are evil. They're enslaving those bees. And all you're doing is eating everything they do. <laughs> well, that's funny. I didn't have to say anything. And I probably wouldn't have said it with that tone. But to, <laughs> to be honest, all the stuff that people eat that is on their diet is coming from that pollination from the honeybees. That is being except for your lettuce and spinach. That is being used as a commodity, right? It is. It is. And so, so from that standpoint, we're all in this together, and nobody's innocent in that, right? No. So and now let me go back and clarify, because, like I said, I I did veganism <laughs> for like two years, and I do live with a vegan who is still vegan at this point. But there are, like everything, there are many different camps to that entire scenario, right? There right. are the ones that want to do it because they don't want to further the harming of animals. There are ones that do it for health and nutrition purposes. Then there's the ones that take this weird dogmatic approach to it becomes a religion. And those are usually the ones that have a problem with honey and honeybees because they feel like we've enslaved them and, and they're trapped and they can't get away. And I'm like, oh, if you only knew, they can leave anytime they want to. But I just learned the other day that there's a whole other layer and realm of them that don't do any oils. And that one blew my mind i'm still trying to figure that out well yeah there's right. that too <laughs> but... <laughs> right. that one because I don't want everybody to, to no 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 um but, but that that's off the subject of this and yeah so that, that was that was kind of a funny little reference though <laughs> so, i'm glad that you said that because i was going to circle back to the reason why they're using the log hives um, and yeah, well, obviously they're suspending them higher because that's what the bees tend to prefer on average, according to Dr. Seeley's uh, research in the Arnold Forest. Uh, but the uh, thickness and the thermal mass and insulation that's in those log hives is amazing. And uh, I believe that combine that with this smaller volume that's encouraging them to uh, swarm more often, which is a cleansing bird break that takes care of a lot of the pests and disease uh, loads. You also don't have to store as much food or need, you don't need as much food either. You keep smaller population and um, that works better for them. They don't need bigger population anyway because they have all that thermal insulation, uh, thermal mass around them that's allowing them to uh, go through cold winters without having that much food. Um, and, and that big of population. So from that standpoint, I really, really love that. And by the way, I got myself a couple of um, uh, log hives that were uh, 
um, carved by a, a friend of mine and I'm going to use them but horizontally. I'm going yeah. I'm I'm to put them, uh, yes, I'm going to be a beekeeper and I'm going to put them at my waist level so I can take a look and peek because I'm curious. And then also being a horizontal, I'm going to have one end that's going to be the, the back like a horizontal hive uh, frameless and I'm going to be able to open and see if you know, if I want a little honey or whatever, I can still look through. Um, that's not my end goal, but to kind of see what's going on with them and, and evolve or just by curiosity. So yeah. I might not remove anything from it, but I, I will definitely take um, video of the expansion. That'll be really cool. So that that was one of the things that I wanted to kind of loop back in there as well was the fact that we talk about rewilding we talk about putting bees back into the wild in a natural or mimicking natural as close as we can type of environment and container so when you're doing removals you find bees in everything i have found them in tires walls floors basements like any any structure of a house they've been there um underneath bathtubs literally like filling the bathtub so you can hear them and feel them vibrating in the tub really weird uh but like i have found bees in so many crazy places inside so many weird objects that have been discarded and tossed out there and they've decided hey this might work sometimes it does Sometimes it doesn't because there's not enough thermal protection there, insulation barrier for them to maintain that thermal mass and the, the thermal regulation, but they attempt it and they go through and they try it. So taking them out of a structure like that and then putting them into a more natural structure and letting them be out in the wild, especially, you know, we're talking like forests and things like that. We're not talking that they're putting them around a populated area and that is then letting the bees swarm and move right back into people's houses. That's not what they're doing. So when I looked at what I used to do from the removal aspect, we go and we take these bees, we are rescuing them, we are quote unquote, saving them from extermination because they're in places that are not copacetic with the homeowner or the property owner. They're not somewhere that a bee should be (laughs) and everybody get along peacefully, you know, like there's kids, there's animals, there's pets, there's construction, there's who knows what. And so it causes problems. So we take them out of those situations But instead of putting them into a wilding type environment, because there wasn't a lot around a mega metroplex like that, we take them out to a removal yard and we manage them like a normal colony. Because if we manage them, we can reduce the chances of them swarming. Normal. Normal. Normal colony. Normal (laughs) colony. But we, we, well, right. I put them into a top bar hive. So I wasn't putting them in a Langstroth hive. (laughs) First off. What is a normal colony except one that's not in man-made structures, right? right? Exactly. So we take these bee removal colonies (laughs) and we go put them into top bar hives and we manage them so that we can reduce the chances of them swarming because again, there's already so many feral colonies in that Metroplex area and in the central Texas area that it wore me ragged constantly every single day, nonstop doing these removals. So I didn't think that we really needed any more of them out there, but you go off into these other forests and you go off into these other areas, places like California, where they have decimated all of the forage and the water and everything else. And they're the native bees have a hard time surviving. If you can start repopulating in some of the forests and things around there, sure. That's a great thing. And as Dr. Seeley pointed out, you add in these genetics that are more evolved than the genetics of the beekeeping colonies because they've been forced, you know, survival of the fittest and natural selection. So those are all good aspects. And and I love the concept of like 
having bees in a hive, like there's been so many times that I've cut down a section of a tree and been like, I'm just going to take this. I'm going to stick a bottom on it and I'm just going to leave it. I'm going to take it home and leave it out there, you know, like, but so I get it. I just don't know. I think it's very subjective uh, per region and in, in climate and things like that. Yes. I mean, all beekeeping is absolutely or all anything related to honeybees is absolutely hyper local. So to your point, we have a, a, a over quantity of honeybees in, in Texas, partly because it's a warm climate. They do better than they do when it's cold during the whole winter. It's easier on them. We also have a lot of commercial beekeepers that are overwintering in Texas and bringing thousands and thousands of colonies all around, which um, is bound to increase the population of ferals as well. And Some of those are going to swarm. We've got gonna... lots of scutellata genetics, which like yeah. to swarm at the drop of a hat, and right. they, they reproduce prolifically. By the way, uh, my understanding of feral versus wild is that wild is a colony that's escaped a managed apiary uh, and has maybe potentially overwintered one year. If they have been out there and we don't know for sure if they've escaped any kind of uh, managed apiary at any point, but if they've been there uh, for a couple, it looks like they've been in that cavity for a couple years or three years, then, you know, they're more likely to be actually truly feral, meaning completely unmanaged. That's laughing. funny. I look at that completely the opposite. I understand <laughs> that that's the definition of it, but I look at it completely the opposite. A feral calling to me is, is one that's like, it may have escaped or, you know, whatever, but it's wild, like truly wild if it has just lived out there forever. Okay, so if they're wanting to, you know, escape from the apiary, they're wild. You can't keep them in a box. They're wild. They're, they just want to go out and party with their bee friends. And then the ferals, they've been out there for so long, they might be a little raggedy. They don't cut their hair. You know, they're just kind of like... <laughs> That's how I remember it. But I had looked up the the the, 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 the definitions of both words. So that's kind of why I'm like, uh, that's my perception. That's it. it. No, but that is a good. Also, oftentimes when we have any type of bee, beekeeping type talks, to me, wild and feral are interchangeable. You're, yeah, you're denoting it is not a managed colony. It's not yeah. in a, it's, it's not in a quote unquote man-made beehive, yeah. um, you know. So therefore, it is that. Now, if you open up that colony that is suspected to be feral and you find a queen that's got a dot on her back. <laughs> that's definitely a wild one. They're just escaped <laughs> recently. <laughs> well, and when I think feral, I think about Arnold Forrest and Dr. Seeley's research, whereas wild to me uh, is more clo is closer to um, uh, metropolitan areas or populated areas. So, I mean, I don't know. I guess it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. And I'm probably just nitpicking. <laughs> but in, in, in let me remind you that English is not my first language. So if you want to just kind of tell me to shut up right now, you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the other thing, too, that I that I wanted to point out when my whole brain was originally spinning with all of this stuff is the concept that you've got. I've said this before. I said this. I want to say again, this, like my brain is, it's all, it's everywhere. <laughs> the show's gone on forever in my head. Okay. So like after yeah. a while, it's all repeat. <laughs> yeah. So early on, I'm pretty sure it was the first season, but early on, um, I had made a comment about how, like, I think Ken had asked me something about 
you know, the feral colonies out there in the trees and things like that. And how do you know, and you know, well, that those are doing better and they're surviving or they're actually dying. And I was like, well, that, that's a very good point because say you like to go on a hike and you hike through this wilderness trail and you found a bee tree that actually has a wild or feral colony of bees inside the tree. And every year you go there, maybe it's your summer vacation home or something like that. And it's not a place that you live and you see every day, but you see it, you know, at a certain time of the year, every single year. And you're always like, Oh, growing up, that was the bee tree. And there's always bees there, but you're not constantly watching it. So you don't honestly know if it is the same colony of bees that colony could have died. It could have died from pests or diseases or whatever. And then like bees do, another swarm comes through. They smell the pheromones. They smell the wax. They investigate. They check it out. And they're like, oh, my God, it's a perfect place to live. And there's already furniture. And they just move in. So yes. if you're missing that, if they died after you left and a new colony moves in before you come back, you will never know if that was the same colony or not. And that was a that was an argument that I used with Ken way back in the day. But when you bring Dr. Seeley into the equation, he is actively monitoring these colonies. They are observed. They are not the unknown in the forest. You know, if a tree falls, do you hear it kind of scenario? He's actively monitoring these colonies and he can say with authority, these colonies are surviving and they are doing better than the managed colonies. And that is a that's a huge thing. And I believe him much better than the Texas beekeeper that was telling me though that they were <laughs> probably. Anyway, but uh, so the other thing to keep in mind is that <laughs> you're laughing. <laughs> uh, an average, the average lifespan for a colony that's made it through their first year and that's now established is actually about, I think about seven years, seven, something like that, seven, eight years. And uh, to your point, you don't know if it's the same one necessarily because at some point, the conditions in an unmanaged um, bee, uh, hive cavity like this is going to be, um, that's going to be in, in unsanitary because the comb's going to get so dark and so black and there's going to be so much accumulation of, you know, toxins. Even if you're in a remote environment, just the simple facts of life accumulate some toxin. Uh, the, the the larvae just kind of defecate before they spin their cocoon, for example, and there's viruses and, and you know, the wax absorbs that. So the the natural cycle of a colony is to abandon and abscond at some point when it gets unsanitary and unlivable with two small cells and to leave the wax moss to do the cleanup job, right? So, yep. and then, so, but then after that, it still smells like a colony. It still has propolis on the inside. And that, that's the amazing, when you, when you do removals, you notice that the inside of those trees, which were all kind of rough and, and, and you know, uh, scratched up or whatever, and just uneven are not completely covered in propolis to, make it less sharp and to make it more waterproof and to provide uh, volatile compounds of um, propolis that are helping keep the bruise nest healthy and clean. So that's all these things is, I mean, it's amazing to watch the bee trees, right? And, yeah. and like you said, they're not, I mean, like we said, they're not always vertical. I'm going to keep coming back to that. Well, no. Okay. Cause I, I will, before, when we wrap this up, I will make a point about that. So, um, but no, you're, you're absolutely correct. They, they have all the propolis in there. So there's only, there's only two scenarios for them to get out of that. If the cavity is large enough and there is room for them to move, they will actually expand away from either right. above, below, adjacent, beside, 
away from that older nasty comb and they will purposefully abandon it and leave it. Yeah, but they'll leave it for the wax moths to come in there and clean it up. And then once the wax moths have cleaned it all up, they keep them out of the nice fresh wax. They don't let them come in there. They keep it all nice and clean. And then whenever they need to, and this other section they've moved into now starts getting bad, they'll move back over kind of like a typewriter. They'll move back to that original position and they'll fill it back up. If the cavity does not have the versatility to do that, then they do exactly what you said. They abscond and they leave it because every time that bee is born and that cocoon is there, they come back in, they repropolize, they rewax it. The cell gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it can't actually hold anything anymore. And you see old combs sometimes with these ridiculously small cells because they've just filled it into the point. They're like, ah, screw it. We can't do nothing with it. And then they abandon it. Sometimes it might have food. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just there. <laughs> yeah, I have some of that in my first worry that made it. May I remind you, treatment free without feedings and without any inspections for eight years, right? Yeah. But they ended up leaving completely. There was not a dead out. That was that was just empty. That was an abscond because there was the cells were so black and the the comb was so black and the uh, cells were so small. To your point. But uh, I wanted to circle back real quick before we run out of time on uh, Dr. Seeley's points. What I love about this effort is exactly what Dr. Seeley is talking about is when we let the bees do their thing and they do it very well, he said it uh, on their own, uh, we allow them to leverage natural selection to get stronger. And when we interfere with those mechanisms, and that's me adding it, we're really doing them a disservice. We're, we're basically promoting, we're propagating weaker genetics that would otherwise have died. And we're propping them up with pesticides, making those, um, those uh, pests and diseases that much stronger. And the bees that much weaker. Yeah, exactly. So I think that from that standpoint, that this effort is amazing and right up my alley. <laughs> and um, and, and it's, it could be, the an investment in the future of all mankind if we end up losing all our managed colonies we might not have enough food but then by the way um if we lose managed colonies we might have to rethink the way we grow food and 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 we might have to rethink how much effort we put in protecting all bees and a lot of native bees are perfectly capable of pollinating our crops it's just the way that big ag has been doing their um, commercial ag- agriculture has demanded um, and they've been able to pay again it's a supply and demand right right the, people are taking their their beehives to to uh, california because they're getting paid pretty well for that yeah you basically so- it's if it's hyper local and you're growing a variety of things and there's natural habitat around and there's natural under forage and cover and stuff there yes native pollinators can do an amazing job and they will. And we talked about on the last episode, how some specific types of bees are specialized for specific types of plants. But if you have 300,000 acres of one thing and you've eradicated all the natural habitat and natural nest sites, all the low cover and everything else, exactly, those native pollinators cannot contend with that. And they can't keep up with that. And they're never going to be able to pollinate all of those plants. That is a monocrop doesn't even provide diversity. (laughs) Well, especially if you keep spraying pesticides on, on those kit, crops, right. <laughs> right? So, yeah, so there's, there's a whole lot of uh, issues and stuff with that, but ultimately the, the last little point here, cause we brought up the whole horizontal hive and everything else multiple times. 
So here's the deal. In all honesty, Langstroth hives, again, for the beekeeper, for the honey producer, to do everything frame, there. Frame hives in general. Yeah, frame hives in general. Well, let's see, you, you jumped ahead. Because the next point was a horizontal hive, like a lay-ins hive that still has frames, but they're bigger and they're deeper, Maybe is better. still the same concept. The only thing you've changed is you're working it on a horizontal plane, which is easier on you. Right. You don't have the heavy boxes to lift and move and everything else. So True. I will give them credit for the fact that they're trying to uh, think about the way the bees move. They do. But again, what I've seen when I'm looking at them building their comb is they're going to go horizontal first. And right. I think it still works better in colder climates. Yes. But, but now to that exact note, though, the Lands Hive is still made out of, most of the time, the exact same lumber that a Langstroth Hive is made out of. So you did not increase your R value for your insulative factor there at all. You right. just changed the orientation. And that's why I said it's easier on you. You but didn't help them a lot. <laughs> because it's horizontally managed, you can use much thicker lumber. I, and yes. Insulation. And even uh, Dr. Leo, I think he puts uh, wool inside of his uh, insulated layens hives in between two walls. Yeah. So two walls of plywood. If you're doing something like that and you're adding a double wall and you're adding insulation, then you are being more conscious. You're right. thinking it through and you're actually doing something to try to mimic what? <gasps> a tree cavity, because that's yeah. what the bees would actually live in. So now you take all those concepts, you still have frames, you still have this other stuff going on. But when you put it into the perspective of a top bar hive that is made out of two by inch thick lumber, right. two inch thick, two by, for people who are listening to this that are not in the United States, when we say two by, two X, we're talking that it is two inches thick. That's the measurement of the wood. Five centimeters. Uh, one inch is 2.54 uh, centimeters. So yeah. multiply by that. I'll leave that to the French girl to translate because... <laughs> things even further as a french girl i'm going to complain literally by the fact that the when you say two two by two inch lumber is actually in reality dimensional lumber which means it's only one it's, and a half it's inch. like one and a half to one and three quarters maximum yeah because it started off at two inches and then they compress it down and that makes it actually smaller but no, i'm not a metric i mean i'm not an imperial system person at all yeah. So um, all of that being said, you turn around, you take these bees, you put them into a top bar hive that is potentially made out of thicker lumber, not the single sheet thin stuff. And there are no frames. There are bars that they build their combs naturally as thick or thin as they want, as large or small cells as they want all the way through. So if you are a beekeeper and you are trying to help the hives be as natural as they can, a top bar hive is going to be the closest thing to a tree log that has fallen on the ground that the bees have moved into, or a hollow limb way up in the air that goes out vertically. That's going to be as close as you can get. If you want to work to save the honeybees, quote unquote, and you think that this wilding thing is a good idea, don't do it if you live in Texas. They don't need it. Um, if you live in other states, though, where maybe you do have a lot more open range and a lot of, uh, you know, just wild land out there and you want to make these hollow cavities that can be hoisted up in trees and have them as potential nest sites for bees to move into, go for it. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting concept, but I definitely think with everything else, there needs to be some thought into it because, again, I came from a world where there were so many freaking 
quote unquote feral wild colonies out there right. that they they don't need rewild. They they oh. need they they we were doing all we could yeah, to yeah. save the ones we could from where yeah. they were. Yeah. Um, so we don't need more colonies out there swarming, infesting more structures that they're not supposed to be in. So it's a very it's a tough one for me. Like I said at the very beginning, I have flip flop back and forth through this. And I thought I had a stance and then I changed my mind and then I changed it again. And then I watched that stupid video and I sat there listening to Dr. Seeley and I was like, okay, now it's all just like my brain exploded and I don't know what to do. I, so I totally, um, I'm on board for this. And if they want to do it in Texas, as far as I'm concerned, they, they should, and that's okay. But I think it'll be more useful in colder climates and it'll help the, the wild and feral bees a lot more. Uh, uh, comparatively speaking, because there's also harsh winters. But then I want to remind people, everybody, what you and everyone can do at their own level is to help bees of all kinds, not just the honeybees, is what? Plant. Plant for pollinators. Plant throughout the season. Plant trees, plant bushes, plant, you know, uh, flowering uh, plants and, and, and let your herb gardens go to seed. Don't use pesticides. Those are the real ways that we can really have a large impact altogether, even without being beekeepers, right? So anybody can do this. And uh, for example, we, we have a, a really nice plant list for Texas, but anybody can do that for their own state. Uh, and when I say we, I say uh, on our website, but the um, any state can do this. And it has to be somewhat locally adapted because not all plants, just like, you know, uh, everything else don't thrive in different conditions and preferably try to be mindful of those plants not being invasive and imported and, and highly damaging to the ecosystems. Yeah. And to clarify further, when you said we and our website, you're referring to the Be Mindful website. Sorry, yes. Sorry. <laughs> it is not on the Hive Jive website, but what it is going to be on the Hive Jive is several episodes that break down the entire United States by region and yes. by area that tells you what to plant and everything else along those lines. So that will be in existence kind of on the website because it'll be on an episode on the website. But yeah, you can look forward to that later. <laughs> I am so excited about this and I can't wait. I just like the uh, the investment property rehabilitation renovation work. I just wish it was already done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you and me. I'm just ready to be there. done. Too many, too many balls flying in the air that we have yeah. to juggle. With. Too many irons in the fire. Too many, yeah, too many balls in the air that are juggling, but uh too many beehives, depending on where you live. Um, I'm I'm just picking on Central Texas, really, guys. Seriously, there's too many freaking colonies out there. But if you live in other parts of Texas, because Texas is huge. So maybe you live out by Big Ben. Maybe you live, you know, in an area where there's not any people around anywhere. Like, oh, I don't know, the whole panhandle of Texas. Um, okay, sorry, Amarillo and Lubbock. Yes, there are some people yeah. in some areas. But for the most part, no. And you wanted to go out and do this rewilding thing. And you wanted to set up things where there could be a live wild colony of bees, a feral colony of bees that is living naturally, that's not managed and not treated and not done anything else. And it might help your garden or your neighbor's gardens. Go for it. That's fine. Um, I just don't think they need to be in an area where you can literally do a minimum of one removal a day, seven days a week, almost half of the year, if not longer, and not make a dent. <laughs> so, yeah, Times seven people or eight people or 10 people. <laughs> yeah. 
there's still some level of help through natural selection, but the bee population in the area doesn't need it. And that's why I always tell people, you're not helping the bees by get, becoming a beekeeper. No. Well, and the, the ag exemption thing is a, a great scenario for how it should not be done too, because you have government entities that are not really wanting to give you a tax break. And so they set very high thresholds on right. what they think need to be out there. And then you've got, say you've got 10 neighbors, all of them only have five acres each or six acres because right. six would be the minimum. You have to have, we're getting to a whole area of people are like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, but so you got six acres of land and in your county, the ag exemption level for it, requirements yes. thank you the ag requirements for it is say something ridiculous like 12 colonies yeah. to be able to exempt your six acres of land but you've got 10 other neighbors that all also have six acres of land and they all want the exemption too so they all get 12 colonies and suddenly there's a shitload of colonies on this one piece of land that probably didn't have enough forage to support the 12 to begin with start with yes exactly that's exactly what's happening in driftwood for example yeah yeah so that that can be a problem. And that's the type of overpopulation stuff that I am referring to and talking about when I'm like, we don't need to rewild them out there. We're doing everything we can just to save the ones that are in places they shouldn't be. I am all for giving them a natural site, though, because at the same time, if they're going to swarm and they're already out there and they're going to move into something, wouldn't you rather them move into something more akin to a tree trunk as okay. opposed to your porch? Exactly. So that would be more of a... Um, uh diversion maybe like a um attracting them away from places you don't want them into yeah but it, it's not necessarily a uh end-all be-all either though because say you do have this outside in your backyard and bees do move into it well guess what it's a natural cavity they're going to swarm minimum once a year if not depending on their <laughs> genetics four or five times a year and then what's going to happen they're still going to be in your porch yeah so now that we have thoroughly confused everybody given you a lot to think about potentially piss some people off especially if you're vegan sorry um flash <laughs> all together right so. <laughs> right right is your head spinning because mine is <laughs> That was great, though. I like the the intellectual exercise. It was. It was. It was kind of a fun thought, and it's one of those where I really, I think I'm straddling the line, because honestly, and this hurts me to say, but a much younger version of myself, which I don't <laughs> feel like I'm old enough to be able to say that, but I feel like it sometimes. So a much younger version of me would have just, without question, been like, "Oh hell yes, this is awesome. Let's do it." Yes. The little bit older version of me is who's done all these other things and had this experience and stuff is sitting there going, wait a minute. I don't know. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Because again, certain situations, there's already an overpopulation. And do we want to promote that? And I don't know. Is it a good thing? But I do like Dr. Seeley's expert advice on why in the certain areas in that, you know, hyper local instance, it is beneficial and it is good and it is a good thing to do. So definitely not belittling or poking fun at the individuals no, who are pushing not. this forward i'm all for it they are awesome they are amazing and they are doing it in the right areas i'm just cautioning everybody else out there listening <laughs> that's all i'm doing just keep in mind all the possible considerations it's like with everything else we're going to do that about you know when we say follow the money we do the same thing right so we're just trying to be as objective as we can that's right 
So there you go, everybody. That is your mind-numbing, very twisted, back-and-forth ping-pong <laughs> battle of confusion for a beekeeper topic for this week. So we hope that you've enjoyed, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. But until then, as always, be good. And be mindful. This Hive Jive production was made possible by amazing patrons like you. And we appreciate your support. To all our Hive Jive junkies out there, you truly are the bee's knees. <laughs> <laughs>